Welcome to the Coconuts Podcast. Today is April 8, 2022. The Coconuts Podcast is your home for top trending news and pop culture from all across Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. From Manila, I'm Sam Beltran. And from Bangkok, I'm Nikki Tan School. Hey, Nikki, 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 oh, what's not up? not Andra. I'm not Andra. <laughs> oh, like, you're not Andra. Because Andra is out sipping coconuts in Bali. Oh. So today, we've got you. But I'm yes. so stoked to have you on here because we loved having you on during your croc episode. Yes. Did anyone remember that? That recap? Yeah. Eating crocodile was uh, very chickeny. <laughs> you're, you're the chi- like, yeah, exactly. The chickeny and the grilled thing. Yeah. Being, you know, going loco for the croco. Anyway, Nikki, what's <laughs> up? How's it going in Bangkok? D- um, have you had any croc meat recently? <laughs> no, but uh, I got, I got, uh, I got something even worse and magical. It's called COVID nineteen. But holy shit! <laughs> holy I shit! Did- <laughs> I did a full recovery. <laughs> I'm okay now. I'm okay now. I'm okay. I'm so glad. Like, okay, not to be the selfish one here, but I'm so glad you recovered in time. <laughs> for yeah. The no. Podcast. Totally. Yeah. No. I. I was like, no. I have to. I'll have to make it. For this podcast i'll have to awesome possum so what's the what's the club scene in bangkok like now uh, <laughs> uh it's it's coming back uh nightlife is coming back you know if you're into edm and everything you know creamfields is coming to thailand i believe it's also coming to hong kong as well um so there's that and uh i do know that indie bands are coming are, are coming to to the city as well but uh, it's just like very little known bands, I, I guess. But I guess we can expect more international artists to come in the coming months, to, to arrive here in the coming months. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, sure. totally something to look forward to. Anyway, so thanks for sharing. Like, I didn't know you were such a huge music fan. We should probably have you on next time we have a Fresh Tune Friday episode. Yeah. 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 Like, whenever we do, you know, like whenever we interview up and coming and cool artists around Asia. So, Mm. yeah, I guess it's time to get to the top stories. From a man painting artwork with his peepee to alien worshippers in Bangkok. Coconuts TV brings you wacky and impactful documentaries from across the region. Don't miss out. Head down to our Coconuts TV YouTube channel to subscribe and enjoy. All right. First off in Coco Land in Bali, some sad news. Uh, Nikki, I think we've covered this before, but I think both of us are dog lovers. Yeah. yeah I love dogs. Yeah. I, I totally love dogs. I mean, if yeah, I was rich and I would open up like a mansion. If, if I had a mansion, I would adopt all the stray dogs out there and give them a home. You know, that's 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 oh, <laughs> man. We have the same dream. Like I like when I get to retirement age, hopefully when I get rich from all this cocoa dough. <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I really hope to have like this farm, like same as you, where I could just adopt all the strays on the street and then. Exactly. Give them a loving home and just, you know, give them a a sanctuary where they can live out the rest of their doggy days. But unfortunately, in Bali, that is not the case, as apparently somebody has been poisoning street dog off beaches in the area of Berowa or along Changu, rather. So that's really, really sad. So about 10 dogs in total have been have been poisoned. And it all started when a bunch of locals and a bunch of local residents who have been living there, who have been feeding and caring for these dogs, just found them practically dead. And then week after week, they'd find these these dogs poisoned from, you know, like they they would find these dogs killed from rat poison. So that's really, that's really heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, so this feature was written by yeah by Amal Azwar, a uh, managing editor of Coconuts Bali, and nobody really knows right now why these dogs were killed. Um, I believe he went around asking authorities as to any if they would have any suspicions as to why they would be killed, but it it could have been you know it it could have been anything. Um, apparently it's been the issue of stray dogs has been going on for a while now. So while a lot of the tourists and a lot of the residents. Um, they love the presence of these dogs, right? But apparently, they've 
they've been causing some sort of um, disturbances in terms of um, when it comes to the local businesses there. Uh, so, you know, there's been issue of like dog poop um, going around and, you know, th- there's been signs put up, you know, banning tourists from bringing their dogs. So it's really such a horrible animal situation. And yeah, the Bali Welfare, um, Bali Animal Welfare Association said that the dogs killed in the Barawa area were all healthy, sterilized, and rabies vaccinated, which really, you know, it really boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. Like, what what did these dogs do? Yeah, um, it ha- I think, I don't know how, what, what goes through one's mind when they want to, like, poison dogs, like, you know, keep off our property or... You know, I know I know like stray dogs roam around and like, you know, cause some, you know, maybe they might eat someone uh, some food out there. But, you know, that doesn't give you the right to kill them. I don't know. I don't, right. Yeah, right. Knows. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And um, yeah. um, what's really sad is that Bali just started opening up to international visitors. So, you know, having these news of dogs just being killed week after week isn't really doing any good to their, you know, to their tourism image, especially as they try to revive you know the the tourism industry so yeah i really hope that they do sort that one out yeah that guy this this needs justice for sure yeah absolutely oh that's so horrible yeah and speaking of justice uh in bangkok uh from where i'm from uh, a woman was arrested for stealing a golden necklace from a tourist while he was filming a youtube video like it was caught the whole the whole thing was caught on tape yeah go to to your room (laughs) A woman named Manasanan Pengwishai uh, was arrested just this past Saturday by police in Lumpini. She was caught on camera like a man whose name is Frederick de Vries, I believe. This guy from Belgium, uh, he was walking along the streets of Aso, which is a popular uh, spot for tourists and locals alike. Yeah, he was walking at night mm-hmm. and this trans woman uh, came up to him and gave him a hug. But uh, if you look closely in the video, uh, wow. the necklace was so was gone when she you know, let go of him. And uh, I don't think he noticed that. Is that is smooth. Yeah, it's really smooth. Uh, I, I don't know how that happened, but man, for for someone to witness that, like, I think, I don't know, for locals, I guess that we would know that, that was there was something weird going on. But, you know, if tourists, maybe they might not know, you know, that <laughs> such things can happen. So, you know, that's sure. unfortunate. Yeah, but uh, uh, she was arrested. Uh, apparently, the necklace belonged to the man's uh, grandfather and it was worth around uh, 800 euros, which is, ooh, that's a lot. Wow. Uh, yeah, that is yeah, a lot. It is a lot. And uh, I don't think he got the gold necklace back because uh, she pawned it off already and but even though she was arrested, she pawned off the necklace. So uh, that's unfortunate. Okay, so as a local, Nikki, tell me, was would, would that have been weird? Like, say you were walking along a street and then some some woman decided to come up to you and give you a hug. That would have sent off signals, right? Yeah, I mean, that was like super red flag right there. Like, I think that you could have you could have seen that a mile off. For me, anyway, I don't know. I, I just think that no, know, no, right. No stranger would come up to you and give you a hug. Like, let's let's be honest. Like, <laughs> the odds no, of that I, I happening know. are like zero to one. Because I was thinking, like, is this a cultural thing? But I, I would imagine that that wouldn't bode well as well overseas. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I can't imagine being in the States and then just yeah. some stranger coming up to me and giving me a hug. Like, that would have, you know, set off some some red flags. But, you know, in this case, you know, I like to rag on people who are on social media a lot or on their phones or on their cameras a lot. Like, I like to rag on them. But in yeah. this case, like, wow, this dude is lucky that, you know, he, <laughs> he was basically just filming every single mundane thing that he was doing yeah. while on his trip to Bangkok. Otherwise, he wouldn't have met the justice that he was able to find. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, definitely. It was it was insane because in the video you don't even see the the woman, you know, her her face at all. Like you, she was wearing a mask. You only see the back of her head as she was uh, un- unclasping the the necklace right. from him. Yeah, it was crazy. And uh, it turns out that she uh, had prior arrests. For uh, prostitution and theft in Pattaya back in uh, 2013 and 2015. So, oh, damn. Yeah. So So she's a pro. She's a pro. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And I love that she just, you know, targets tourists in particular. Like, she's got a niche. (laughs) 
Yeah. A bit like, you know, I bet when it happened, the guy was thinking like, oh, these people are friendly here. <laughs> exactly. Oh, the land of smiles. <laughs> and hugs, apparently. But yeah, you know, even if he didn't get the necklace back, you know, it's it's great that he was able to, you know, get some sort of, you know, like he was able to get some sort of vindication. So in that case, you know, being a vlogger and having all that FOMO on social media saved him. Yeah, lucky him. <laughs> lucky him. Okay, so from theft in Bangkok to porn being fine for watching too much porn in Hong Kong. So that's really not quite the case. But as Coconut Hong Kong reports, there is a security watchdog who is warning people about an intricate phishing scam that, interestingly, is warning people about falling for a scam where you get fined for watching too much porn. <laughs> what? That is that is bizarre, but surprisingly believable. Like I believe this is something that could really go over and fool a lot of people. Like probably not just in Hong Kong, but everywhere else. Yeah, especially yeah, South okay. Asia, I believe. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Like just imagine just a pop up going like you're watching too much porn. Turn that shit off, and you gotta pay <laughs> X amount. So anyway, so a cybersecurity watchdog in Hong Kong has warned the public about a phishing website posting as the Hong Kong police and quote-unquote fining people for visiting too many porn sites. So the Hong Kong Computer Emergency Re Response Team Coordination Center said that it had received reports about a phishing attack that involves faking the police website, which had the same link and logo as the real site of the Hong Kong police force. So it tries to get um, visitors' credit card details by telling them that they have been browsing too many pornographic websites, so they've got to pay a penalty. So according to a screenshot that was sent by the watchdog, um, the website practically tells or warns the users by saying that their browser has been blocked due to repeated visits to pornographic sites containing materials prohibited by laws of Hong Kong. So it also tells the users to pay a fine of 3,700 Hong Kong dollars by credit card. Wow. Within 12 <laughs> hours, that is crazy. Like that amount of money is, is crazy within 12 hours. And if they fail to do so, or if they attempt to unblock it without paying the fine, all information on their device will be permanently deleted. So yeah, so basically what 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 they what they do is they fake it using like some sort of like the full screen effect. So you don't get to see the URL window that's on top. But so I guess to make sure they're warning people that when every time you receive like that kind of warning or that pops up on your on your browser, all you have to do is press the escape key and see whether the URL is legit or not. But yeah what say you nikki would you <laughs> what do you what do you think about these these interesting scams i think the best thing i guess like what the the hong kong's esteemed cybersecurity uh, uh experts say you know always check the url it is like the easiest way to find out whether you're in a legitimate website or not yeah plus uh you know by looking at the the the, the, the sham the sham website uh it says like pay the fine within 12 hours like i don't think uh like authorities would be that demanding with like exactly <laughs> I don't think so. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just my common sense, but I, I don't know. <laughs> You're a sensible man, Nikki. Wish everybody had the same sense as you. No, but yeah, but what's interesting here also is that it says that the fine doesn't work on smartphones, which kind of clues you in. Like, I wouldn't know what the statistics on porn watching are, but I wouldn't know whether people watch it more often on their smartphones or on their laptops, which, you know, I guess it kind of gives you an idea of, Right. You know, like kind of like the psyche of the people that are prone to these scams. So, but yeah, guys, uh, like Nikki said, check the URL. Whenever somebody tries to warn you to pay something in 12 hours, it's probably not real. Yeah, I mean, like, think about it. You're like one in a million people who, who watch porn and the police, you know, would waste all their resources to come over to your house and arrest you. I don't right. think so. I don't think... I don't think that's going to happen, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't know the population of Hong Kong either, right? But I, I, I would surmise, right? But I would surmise that a sizable amount or sizable number of the population <laughs> probably watches porn. And for them to, like, pay 3,700 Hong Kong dollars each, that's, you know, they'd be raking in the dough, man. <laughs> a bit sus, yeah. <laughs> Moving on for Coconuts Jakarta. 
Uh, you know, for all you movie fans out there, uh, Joko Anwar's next movie, we'll see him in Hollywood. Uh, he'll be directing an adaptation of a Charles Beaumont classic short story. It's called Fritchen, I guess. I think that's how you say it. Fritchen. <laughs> oh, boy. I wouldn't know. But I think you're doing a really great job. <laughs> Yeah, um, the project will be produced by uh, the, you know, reputable uh, Village Roadshow Pictures. Joko has uh, stated that the producers at uh, Village Roadshow have long been following his films. And they said that they have wanted to work with him for a long time. So, you know, that's interesting. Uh, The story will be adapted into a script by Michael Voyer of The Broodmare and produced by David Koppel for Entertainment 360. And uh, if anyone knows Fritchen, it's a short story in 1953. Uh, it tells the story of a young boy's encounter with a strange creature on a beach. So I guess, you know, we'll expect some uh, sci-fi and horror elements in the in his new project. So, uh, Sam, tell me, are you a fan of uh, Joko Anwar? I've seen, I, I mean, I've, I've heard about his work. Yeah. I can't really say that I've seen it. But, you know, I've seen the breadth of films that he's done. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. Like, he really spans the gamut. Like, he's got horror. He's got, you know, superhero films. He's got, you know, political thrillers. And, I mean, it's always amazing to see Asian talent. I mean, especially from, like, from what of our shores. Just rise, rise in Hollywood. I mean, not not that we need Western people to validate our talent, right? But, I mean, I mean, there's no denying the influence and, you know, Know, the power that Hollywood has over you know global entertainment in general so that's super duper awesome and you know I'm really excited to see the local flavor or you know his own signature take at least on such a global project so yeah, yeah guys I'm really happy for Indonesia I mean I'm really just stoked every time somebody local or somebody from from Asia succeeds especially like when it comes to film and the arts like I think that's so that's that's really cool yeah same here I'm, I'm pretty glad that you know you know southeast asian cinema is being uh, internationally recognized i believe that one of his films uh, from 2019 it's called uh, impetigor it was uh, selected as indonesia's right. entry for the best international feature film category at the academy awards in uh, 2021 so that's super awesome like he's <laughs> definitely like i mean parasite yeah like see parasite really i feel broke the ceiling so it's really and i mean korea has been crushing it for a while but of course that's because they've invested in in their industry for a while like it's been a real long really long time coming so i'm glad that they're reaping off the benefits and you know it really just opens the door for the rest of us so super duper duper excited to see how this one turns out that's exciting from cinema to food so over here at my hometown in manila well not really in manila but Jollibee, Jollibee is practically taking over the world. I mean, they're opening branch after branch after branch in all sorts of cities worldwide. And now they're opening their first outlet down under in Sydney. Wait, that was really bad, but I'm sticking by it. <laughs> I'm sticking by the horrible accent. <laughs> okay, so tell me, Nikki, have you ever had Jollibee? Oh, no, but, uh, you know, interesting story. No, uh, short answer, no. But uh, the long answer is that I have a Filipino friend. Okay. He loves, he thinks Jollibee of the world. Like, he loves, loves Jollibee. Uh, I've never had the taste because, uh, you know, sadly, uh, Bangkok doesn't have any. But uh, I did ah. read news. Yeah, I did read news that uh, it came over to Edinburgh, like, very recently. You and then did. I remember I remember seeing pictures of, like, you know, long queues and everything. So it does seem pretty exciting. But, you know, to 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 inform a, a guy who's never tasted Jollibee, uh, what's so special about it? You know what? The chicken is just... Okay, so Jollibee is basically like... You know, we haven't even launched into the story yet, but I just want to tell everybody like what Jollibee... Like how important Jollibee is to the Filipino culture. So Jollibee is basically like the fast food in the Philippines, right? And we've got other like other major chains as well. Like McDonald's is its closest competitor. I mean, McDonald's would easily be the closest number two. But Jollibee is just like... It's where every kid had their birthday party. So you would have like fried chicken and spaghetti and then, you know, like just burgers and ice cream. And I guess that really plays into the nostalgia. But just 
I mean, that chicken is just, it's just unrivaled. Like, it's really just so crispy. Like, it really lives up to the hype of it being really crispy. And there's just like this, you know, this subtle sweetness that cuts through it, like in the meat and then that gravy. Oh, good Lord, that gravy. But yeah, so I guess the really the best way to really explain Jollibee or to really get what it's all about is to really try it. So Jollibee, you gotta, gotta step up your game. Gotta open in Bangkok so that Nikki, so that Nikki here can try it. So anyway, but for now, they've opened in Australia, in Sydney. So uh, Australia's Full Times, which is a Filipino uh, Filipino newspaper in Australia, reported that the first Jollibee will be constructed in the suburb of Campbelltown, which is, which is located 56 kilometers west of the metropolitan area in the state of New South Wales. So pre-construction... Um, is reportedly in progress and you know the perspectives or the the preliminary drawings show that it's going to be a standalone branch and it's going to have a drive-through so you know that's really awesome because all of the other branches that i've seen worldwide are usually like within malls or within chains which is great because you know it drives a lot of people on but you know having a drive-through and just being able to have all that space i think that's really amazing and you know it makes sense because there are about ninety-four thousand one hundred filipinos who live in the state of new south wales so that's where sydney is um and overall in australia there are over three hundred ten thousand filipinos and they're like i guess one of the largest you know, one of the largest uh, populations or demographics that's there. So yeah, I guess there they're gonna go. be feeling the. I guess they're gonna be feeling all the chicken joy now down under. So absolutely, yeah. they're gonna be feeling all the chicken joy down under. <laughs> In more serious news, our team at Singapore uh, reported that uh, hundreds of Singapores had gathered on protest grounds uh, to fight for death row inmates uh, three days after the first execution in over two years was carried out. So their transformative justice collective, uh, they are seeking to abolish the death penalty in Singapore's justice system. So they uh, thank the 400 strong crowd for showing its support with uh, with uh, speeches and singing and uh, you know posters. They the the group was. Quite is saying thank you everyone who is at Hong Lim Park today. There were over 400 of us there demanding that we hashtag abolish death penalty everywhere. Thank you all for your placards, your chanting, your singing, and your solidarity. How do you feel about the you know death row and you know the the, the execution? You know how, how how prisoners can face execution at at any time. I've I've never personally really supported anything that I feel is so heavy-handed. Like I understand that there are really heinous crimes that you know can't really be you know that that really can't be excused. Like um, just in 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 Indonesia, for example, like recently there was a like there was this report about the school teacher who was sentenced to death after he raped thirteen of his students. And I get it, I get yeah. it. Like that is really horrible, like beyond words. But I just don't think that, you know, you know, a life for a life. I don't think that that really that that's really the best way to to go about it. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever felt like I don't think they, they feel that kind of vindication after after having done that. Or like they feel that, you know, justice has been served whenever, you know, a life is, is exchanged for a life. But, right. you know, I do understand that justice has to be met somewhat. And, you know, I just really hope that there was a better way that we could really, you know, make sure that we are addressing society's ills and, you know, right. trying to rehabilitate whatever is wrong while making sure that the victims who are wrongly, like who have been wronged, do meet the justice that they do deserve. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do feel like rehabilitation is uh, it's pretty hard. I mean, if we if we have to look at it the you know away from the death penalty. But uh, yeah, anyway, the uh, the the collective, the transformative justice collective, they uh, had a two hour protest which began at five p.m. on Monday. Uh, they wanted to reform the uh, prison system, determined to kill and uh, to fight for fifty death row inmates uh, in Singapore who some of them who do not have the ability to you know appeal their sentences. And uh, you know, one of the protesters. Uh, placards it, it reads uh, the death penalty has got to go no justice no peace no more blood on our hands I guess it's a I mean, pretty heavy, yeah it's pretty heavy isn't it right and I mean that's a really great point like you know when when the guy says you know no more blood on our hands because no matter how how however else you put it like that is still blood on your hands and yeah, I, I really shudder to think about the idea of, and I mean, like, what if, for example, somebody had been sent to jail, you know, wrongly, 
yeah. and was, you know, was meted out the death penalty wrongly. Like that is a mistake that you could never reverse. Yeah. And yeah, that it, I, I shudder to happen. think about that. Yeah, exactly. It and it's it's happened yeah. before. So yeah, I, I totally get it. But I guess, yeah. you know, the death penalty and other heavy handed penalties are really, you know, I guess par for the course for Singapore. So really hope they yes. figured that out. So yeah, the, the protest uh they came it came because from last week on Thursday there was a sixty eight year old Malaysian, uh his name was Abdul Kahar Othman. He was convicted for heroin and uh they executed him uh, in over two years since the pandemic hit. Yeah, so as I was saying, um, uh, it seems like most uh, death row inmates are there for drug-related offenses, uh, which is a uh, which I believe is a bit too much. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty extreme. Yeah, say if you were caught with uh, just a little bit of weed, I, I don't know, would that deserve like? All right, I know weed and heroin are like <laughs> two mild things, like a mild. Yeah. Th- they're like on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Not not that I've ever had heroin ever, nor have I seen it. But I mean, no, dude, either. it's weed, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it turns out that uh, Singapore rules capital punishment mandatory for trafficking 15 grams of heroin and up. That was definitely a lot of heroin. Um, I wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> So uh, the the rally was uh, streamed on live online. So if anyone was there, um, you know, you could have seen people giving out speeches, music, even poetry by members of the by Singaporean public. Yeah, love it. Freedom of expression. Let's fight for it. So more heavy news over at Yangon. So the junta sentenced 24 Yangon youths to death last month, including two boys under the age of 18. That is really fucking horrible. That's horrible. That's no, that's that's so extreme. That's crazy. Okay, so according to its own announcement, the junta through its military tribunal sentenced nine youths from Yangon's Dalbon and insane townships to death under its anti-terrorism law. So they were convicted by the military of shooting at security forces and planting landmines. Because of course, because yeah. of course, underage youths would put up such a good fight against trained military or security forces, right? <laughs> I mean, that just makes no fucking sense. Yeah, that's, okay, um... okay. So before I, I before I rage on on this podcast, let me go on. <laughs> There's more to the story. <laughs> so ten youths were sentenced to seven years in prison by their prison court, according to their lawyers. So some of them include Kim Yang Tu, a Kingston University graduate, and Su Lin Tet. And it's pretty obvious that the military wants to terrify the public into submission when they aired their faces like their mutilated faces on state television. And if you go on to Coconuts Yangon, like you could see how horribly disfigured like the faces of these poor young women look like as opposed to like their regular faces before they were arrested. And, you know, what's really sad is that a detainer also who was later released um, said that Kin in particular was subjected to extensive sexual violence while being held for interrogation. Oh, I mean, I really can't imagine what these poor young people really have to go through. And but yeah, there are more. Uh, there are more um, detainees and who were sentenced to death. So these include five male and two female healthcare workers in Yangon. And um, 15 youths as well, including two university students who were aged 16 and 17, received sentences ranging from life in prison to death from the military council. And they were accused of killing a high school teacher in the township of North Okalapa and were also accused of being involved in the shooting death of an administrator in the township of Lang Tariar. So that adds up to 24 youths sentenced to die with the junta in one month. So, I mean, that is is really rough. And these are 16-year-olds. These are 17-year-olds. Like, I couldn't imagine what I was doing at 16. I was probably watching the Disney Channel still. (laughs) I mean, mean, what were you doing at 16, Nikki? Like, I mean, I mean, don't tell me the dirty stuff, but tell me... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> jump right there uh, no i was gonna say uh just listening to emo bands i don't know indie bands uh, i'm not sure right like exactly which with, with, with your side bangs and skinny jeans probably yeah no but yeah accurate, accurate very accurate very i mean yeah but 
I mean, look, like, look what we were, like, like, look at what we were doing at 16. And not that we didn't have the capacity to think of something bigger than ourselves, but these people, like, suffering under the hands of a tough regime and yeah. having to be sentenced to death, like, or at least life imprisonment, like, I could not imagine what they must yeah. be going through. Like, that, that is, is, that is no, there is no way a 16 year old should, should live like that. No exactly. Way. Exactly. Yeah. Damn, like our hearts really go out to, to, you know, to these poor people. Like, and you know, I mean, the people of Myanmar in in general. Like, that's 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 a really shitty thing. Like, damn it, like yeah, God, like those, why take it out on these young people? And those pictures there, um, you know, it's it's very disheartening to see what you know what's exactly. happening. Exactly. Really like sad. it tells, yeah, it tells the entire story and more. So that's that's unimaginable. Definitely need justice. Uh, you know, we're there for the people of Myanmar. Yep. And that was it with our top story roundup. Up next, we will be inviting Coconuts Hong Kong reporter Peace Chu as she gives us the details on Carrie Lam. That's the current chief executive in Hong Kong. She uh, recently announced she won't be running for second term. We're going to find out why that's a really big deal over there. Yep. So stay tuned, guys. So today we have on over from Coconuts Hong Kong, we have Peace Chu who is talking to us about Carrie Lam. So she's the chief executive of Hong Kong and who announced that she is no longer seeking a second term. And she's here to talk to us today about why that's such a big deal in Hong Kong. So, hey, Peace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the time. Hi, Sam. Hi, Nikki. Oh, hi. Yeah, okay. So, peace. Uh Carrie Lam, she's very famous obviously. Um yeah. she's she she's <laughs> I mean, whether it's for the right or for the wrong reasons, that's pretty much mm. by the by, right? Okay, but <laughs> yeah. um I guess uh for our for our international listeners who might be not so tuned in to Hong Kong politics, could you briefly introduce who Carrie Lam is? Mm, sure. So um, the short answer is that she's the current or outgoing chief executive of Hong Kong. That's the city's leader or the head of the Hong Kong government. But if you ask people on the streets, some would say she's actually more concerned about answering authorities in Beijing than the people of Hong Kong. Mm. Mm. So yeah, uh, multiple news outlets have described Carrie Lam as uh, Hong Kong's least popular leader. Why is that? Mm. So, so like, yeah, I, I think like most Hong Kongers will agree with you that it's a fairly accurate description of Lam. So actually, since the return of Hong Kong to Chinese rule in 1997, we have had like four chief executives. So they all had their fair share of haters. For example, like the Hong Kong's first chief executive, Tong Chiwa, there were actually hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets to protest against his poor policies and decisions in 2003. And our last chief executive, Lan Chenying, was also a hugely unpopular figure. But none of these former leaders have been quite as disliked as Carrie Lam. So I think it's quite evident in how the criticism against her has been coming from across the political spectrum. So in Hong Kong, it's actually quite normal to have like pandemocrats being against the leader in Hong Kong. But actually, some of the fiercest criticism against Lam has in fact come from pro-establishment or pro-Beijing lawmakers and politicians. So, okay, so one of the main reasons for her plummeting popularity is in part sparked by the proposal of a bill that would actually allow extraditions to jurisdictions, including mainland China, in 2019. So if you guys recall, so what happened was that the bill, which has now been withdrawn, actually sparked months of mass and sometimes violent protests. So following that, the next year, Beijing actually introduced a national security law in Hong Kong, which critics say actually curtails freedom of speech. So up to like around now, actually there are more than 150 people who have been arrested under the law. So the extradition bill was actually one of the main reasons why she has been so hugely disliked. But um, on the maybe on more of the livelihood end, um, so um, in terms of like po- politics, like um, she she wasn't handling very well. But like one of her perhaps saving grace was that for the past two years, Hong Kong was actually largely COVID free. 
But this too has actually fallen with the city facing its worst coronavirus outbreak in the past few months. So we have actually had more than 1 million people infected and over 8,000 who actually died in the fifth wave of the virus. And there were many who were actually senior citizens in elderly homes. So critics were actually very angry that the government hasn't done more to prevent the spread and the deaths. I mean, wow, because 1 million people... In the island of Hong Kong, that is pretty. That is that is pretty big, right? For for the population. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's about one million in around seven seven point five million people. So that's more than like one in ten. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. so would you say that the people around you they 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 feel this way about Carrie Lam? Mm. So um, basically, that when I actually monitor social media as well as like. Uh, my friends, as well as what I see, um, the public, they are discussing. When actually, when Lam actually announced that she was not seeking re-election, the news was actually, there was also, there's some fanfare as well as some mockery, like laughing at how she couldn't actually continue. And all these were actually quite expected mm-hmm. because, like, even though like, the protests have actually stopped in Hong Kong, it's clear that a large part of the population still really dislike her and would not want to see her continue for a second term. Yeah, so that was the initial reaction. But after a while, we actually see the shifts in the public sentiment from one of the celebration to concern. Because actually back then, there was already like some rumours and reports of Lam's deputy, John Lee, running for the chief executive election. So... Um, a few days ago, so actually on Wednesday, Lee has actually come out to say that he has resigned and plans to take part in the race to become the city's leader. So from a lot of people, the people that I actually talk to and observe on internet, many actually feel that things are going to be gloomier under, gloomier under Lee's leadership if he indeed gets voted in. And I think that's in part because he comes from a police background and is seen as being rather high-handed. But maybe we can talk more about him later. Yeah. So is it sure. is it is it customary for chief executives to seek more than one term? Mm. So um, actually, like um, Lam is actually not just it's not the first person to just serve one term. So um, as I've mentioned, the hugely unpopular former chief executive Leung Chen Ying. He also did not seek a second term. So um, maybe an interesting fact to note is that like the chief executives in Hong Kong can actually serve a maximum of two terms, which means 10 years in office. But since 20, uh, since 19, uh, since 1997, none of Hong Kong's former leaders have actually managed to do so. So um, our first chief executive, Tong Chi Hua, he actually stepped down after eight years because of what he called health reasons, but many actually believe this because he was actually losing public confidence and Beijing didn't see him fit to continue to lead Hong Kong. His successor, Donald Zhang, also only served seven years because he took over the remainder of Tong's second term for two years and did a second term of five years. So what I gather from what you're saying, Peace, is that for like for Carrie Lam in particular, a, a lot of I mean, aside from how she's handled certain major events in in Hong Kong, like such, such as the extradition bill and the COVID nineteen case, is that um a lot of her see like a lot of people from Hong Kong rather see her as sort of like a mouthpiece at least or an extension of the Beijing administration. Um, would you? I mean, in in that case, uh, would you say that she was popular when she was first elected, and why did she get elected in in the first place? Hmm. Okay. Um. Perhaps I'll answer the second question first. So, okay. kind of to explain why she was actually elected, we have to first understand Hong Kong's electoral system for the chief executive. Okay. So, perhaps unlike some other countries or cities, um, it's actually a small circle election with only around one thousand voters and mostly pro Beijing loyalists. And um, this year, the number of members in the election committee has actually been increased to 1,462. But it's still quite a small number when you compare with the entire population of Hong Kong, which is around 7.5 million. So back in 2017, that year that um, Lam was voted in, uh, Lam was seen as the candidate that was backed by Beijing. So it was rather expected that she was elected because like with... yeah. 
And like with such a system, actually the majority of Hong Kongers didn't actually have a say in voting her in. But after she got the job, I would actually say that she was actually okay at first. So back then, I was a reporter covering the education beat. So I remember speaking to those in the sector, and many have actually praised her for coming up with good policies and channeling more resources to education. Yeah, so, and actually back then, some of the more moderate pandemocratic lawmakers actually had a cordial relationship with her. So for her to actually kind of like fall from this there was quite some expectations of her being one of the better chief executives, but like things really, um, things really changed in 2019 with the introduction of the extradition bill. So, um, so in terms of COVID, like you know, uh, you know, everybody went through COVID uh, in Southeast mm. Asia. What do people think about uh, her handling of the situation over there? Mm. So, like. Um, um, for many, like the number of like more than eight thousand deaths in the just the fifth wave alone, as well as the more than one million infections, they really think that it was due to a lack of um, her poor handling as well as her poor management of the issue. Because as we have mentioned, like Hong Kong was actually doing really fine. Just even as as early like just back in late December, there were really very few cases back in Hong Kong then. And I think a lot of people, there was a lot of anger with like maybe the lack of empathy that she had. Um, there was also like, you can see that back then there were a lot of people, um, there were scenes of pe- uh, elderly waiting outside hospitals when there was really cold weather in Hong Kong because they couldn't get a hospital bed to be um, to be treated for COVID. And there were all these um spread of COVID within elderly homes that led to widespread infections as well as a lot of deaths actually coming in coming from elderly homes. So um this was really quite a kind of like a portrayal of what life was under uh, life in Hong Kong was was like under Lam and people people were very angry and very disappointed with her for that. Damn. So Peace, I just wanna cause you mentioned about how people thought that she had a lack of empathy. Yeah. How would you describe Carrie Carrie Lam's like personality or her profile, at least as how she comes forward to the people? Mm. So um, when Lam was running for the 2017 election, um, she was seen as a very capable member of the who has served the government for many years. She has um, before before being the chief executive, she was in fact the chief secretary. So that's the number two official in Hong Kong. And she also worked as a social welfare director, as well as the secretary for development. So um, she's she was seen as someone who was very willing to to push very difficult policies through the legislature. Since Carrie Lam was running for her campaign in 2017, she has always styled herself as like kind of like an iron lady who is always very willing to push very difficult policy through to through the legislature. Yeah. I remember there was all these discussions about her being like uh, always topping her class, always Whoa. overachieving. So uh, there was all these jokes about her, how she's always like topping her class, always overachieving. And um, I think many of her colleagues, um, perhaps off record, have always discussed her as being a very stubborn and very stiff person. And um, at some point, she did try to exude a more like emphasizing how she's like a mother. But I think most of the time, she has always come across as someone who is working very hard to serve Hong Kong. And um, the the empathy part was like not really her focus that much. Yeah. But um but recently she did come out to share her thoughts about like um all the deaths that have been linked to um COVID recently. And so uh, in twenty nineteen she was very keen on pushing for the amendment to the extradition bill because she wanted to ensure that the suspect for the death of this girl could be um brought back to Hong uh, brought to Taiwan. Because the murder actually happened in Taiwan and the suspect is actually um, still in Hong Kong now. So she was so keen on pushing for this extradition bill to be passed so that the murder suspect can be brought to Taiwan to be brought to justice. And she kept emphasizing on how, um, as a mother, she can empathize with the thoughts of the mother of the girl who was murdered. Yeah. 
I and I even remember like when she announced that she wasn't running any longer, she mentioned her family. So I guess that really plays into what you mentioned about her trying to emphasize her being a a mother. Yeah, so yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, didn't she say that she was going to focus on family when she wasn't running for a second term, right? Yeah. yeah. So she, yeah, I think she's always trying to kind of meticulously balance between her family-loving personality as well as her tough iron lady self-image when she's working. Okay. So now that Lam is uh, no longer in the race, um, what implications would that cause? Like, what 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 would that ha- what what would that mean for the upcoming elections for uh, Hong Kong? Mm. So actually, like in more material sense, I would say that like for most Hong Kongers, they actually don't feel that there's man- there there are many implications as most Hong Kongers can vote, and it really doesn't matter whether she or someone else backed by Beijing runs for the election. Yeah. Oh, so oh. so no biggie. So she's not running. No biggie. Yeah. So yeah. to inform us outside of uh you know Hong mm. Kong, you know, if we're not aware of anything uh what should we who should we know are there any candidates that are you know noteworthy or you know some 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 people some of them that we should be paying attention to mm. so um actually the nomination period has just begun in hong kong so we're still waiting to see who the final candidates will be and it's also an important point to note that the candidates actually need to get um endorsement from uh, members of the election committee so um, like each candidate actually have to secure at least 188 nominations from the election committee to run for the election. So um, because of this, so we're, we're still not sure who the final candidate is, uh, will be, but um, at least um, a number of people have come out to say that they are interested in participating. So they include this former security guard called Lai Hongmui, as well as like Chak Lee Sin, who is a film producer, and also the un- the uncle of actually Hong Kong actor Wang Chou Lam. So um, there's also uh, this this guy called Wu Shai Chun, who is actually a former member of the Democratic Alliance for the Betterment and Progress of Hong Kong, which is a pro Beijing um, political party. So, but despite all these people, despite all these people coming up, um, people actually feel that there's only one serious contender, who is actually John Lee, whom we've mentioned earlier. So he's kind of seen as Beijing's preferred candidate, and also the only one to get the blessing from the central authority. Okay, so could you tell us a bit more about um, about John Lee? Uh, you mentioned earlier that you feel that because of his police background, it's probably going to be a tougher administration under him. But what do you think? Is he well-liked by the people? Uh, what's, what's in store for Hong Kong if he does become chief executive? Mm. So like, um, yeah, as you mentioned that um, he's actually like a former deputy commissioner of police and he also served as the security uh, secretary for security from 2017 to 2021. So um, a lot of people see um, him as kind of more high-handed sort of personality. And um, I think a lot of people will also feel that like the way he handled the, um, the way how he oversaw the police handling of the pro-democracy protests from in 2019 and 2020 will actually affect the way how he might be um, um, governing Hong Kong in the future. So um, yeah, so like that's kind of like the general feeling towards how he will actually lead the city in the future. But um, there's there are also some people who have actually come up to kind of say that he's actually quite open to opinions and willing to back down. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so this is one of the comments made by the um, social welfare lawmaker Tik Chi Yun, who is kind of like seen as a more neutral um, legislator in the Hong Kong Legislative Council. Yeah. So, okay, right. Okay, when all is said and done, uh, oh? when when are the next elections? Okay, yeah. so um, actually the elections was initially scheduled for late March, but um, it's been pushed back because of the very um, the worsening COVID-19 situation in Hong Kong. It's now scheduled for May 8th, and I think eyes will be on who will be the next leader to, to govern Hong Kong in such difficult times. Wow, that's a month from now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so I guess we'll probably check in with you again next month to see how the elections will mm-hmm. go. Yeah, uh, Thailand's getting mm. their election next month as well. So I guess actually <laughs> ours is happening on May 9th. So 
I guess yeah. we're all. <laughs> well, it's going to be a, a an Asia wide shakeup, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll all check in on each other's elections. Hey, did you like did did, did the candidate you want to win win? <laughs> but yeah, so I guess we'll. But you know, I guess the like the the situation in in Hong Kong is pretty interesting, as you know, Carrie Lam mm-hmm. is a pretty divisive figure or like a pretty significant figure so we'll have to see how next month's elections in hong kong will turn out so yeah peace thank you thank you so much for coming on board and chatting to us uh chatting with us about um the carrie lamb situation and yeah best of luck to you guys over there thank you so much that was so i learned so yeah. much from you today yeah, thank you information to take in yeah. so nice chatting with you guys all right see you all around bye bye so nikki like what i'm getting from the whole carrie lamb situation is that i feel like people are kind of happy to see her leave but it doesn't sound like they're exactly excited to see who's taking like taking her place next it feels like they've got the elections in the bag no? yeah it is a it is a difficult situation for the people of hong kong i suppose um there is no right candidate i'm i'm that's what i'm taking from for sure yeah, for sure. But I guess, you know, we'll have to tune in next month and check in with Peace again to see how the entire, you know, how the entire elections play out. And we've got our own elections, apparently, to yeah, worry yep. about as well. Yeah. Yep. So it's a, it's, an, it's an interesting time for, for Southeast Asia. And I guess more stuff for us to cover on the Coconuts definitely. website as well. More content, definitely. Absolutely, guys. So check us out. Anyway, that's all the time that we have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, Check out Coconuts for more of our hottest stories. And we'll see you next week. Same time, same podcast. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support Coconuts and our weird and wondrous stories, you can become a Coco Plus member at coconuts.co slash membership. Make a patron payment at coconuts.co slash patron or buy your fresh merch at the coconut shop at shop.coconuts.co. Advertise with our in-house agency, Grove. Fast, funny, digital. Join forces with us to slay buzzwords, rise above the noise, and sow the seeds of something great. Get in touch via coconuts.co slash grove. Subscribe to the podcast and leave reviews. Tell us how you feel and what you like and don't like. We're excited to hear from you. The Coconuts Podcast delivers impactful, weird, and wondrous reporting by our journalists on the ground in eight cities. Singapore, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Manila, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Yangon, and Bali. Listen to headline news and insightful interviews on matters large and small designed for people located in or curious about Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. The Coconuts Podcast is a Coconuts Media production. Our hosts are Sam Beltran and Pasawat Nikki Tanskul. Our executive producer is Byron Perry. Our production manager is Clarissa Cortez. And our editor is Paul Medina. Mm-hmm.